Hello and welcome to Helix Tapping the Industry, a series where we examine the forces driving the rubber in the markets today. I'm Arusha Das, Head of Pricing, Data and Research of Helix Tap Technologies. I'm joined today by my colleagues, Farah Miller, the CEO and co-founder of Helix Tap Technologies, Alvin Chu, Director, Data and Business Development of Helix Tap Technologies, and Taskia Baki, Communications Associate of Helix Tap Technologies. Hi, guys. Hello, guys. Hi, Arusha. Hi, Arusha. So you guys are just back from World Rubber Summit, which is a major gathering for the rubber industry participants. Yeah, that's right. Um, it was good to interact face-to-face with everyone after almost two years of virtual life. What was the vibe like, Farah? Well, with the surge in volatility, everyone now is increasingly looking at ways to reshape and rethink the rubber business model to make it more resilient, be it from the supplier's or the buyer's perspective, or the necessity to tackle climate change and its risks. Another vital topic of the World Rubber Summit was the much-needed transformative changes the industry requires around sustainability and digitization. So in this current market condition, I suppose the key is to see some consistency in demand, which took a couple of shocks in quick successions lately. Alvin, I would like to ask you, what does the demand scenario look like, especially for tires, given the automotive sector didn't get any time to recover? The demand, especially from the tyre sector, will need a couple of years to reach pre-COVID levels. According to Robert Simmons, Director of Tyre and Rubber Research at LMC International, the new vehicle sales have been hit by various global events, for example, COVID-19, semiconductor shortage and the war in Ukraine, all affecting the economic outlook and the propensity to spend. They estimate that it will likely take up to 2024 before we can see new vehicle sales back to pre-COVID levels, with expected slower growth in advanced economies and stronger growth momentum from emerging economies. However, the replacement tyre markets have been more resilient and recovered strongly in 2021, but the higher fuel prices will affect sales of replacement tyres in 2022. Siemens noted that a drop in fuel prices usually has little impact on driving habits and subsequently a small increase in miles driven, as in you don't suddenly drive more just because it's cheaper to do so. But conversely, an increase in fuel prices will, on average, have a larger impact on miles driven. This was seen clearly in China and the US. In China, particularly, miles driven measured by kilometers driven has climbed back up to pre-COVID levels as people opt for their own vehicles during COVID to minimize human contact. In fact, total taxi journeys were lower than in pre-COVID time. But the worrying thing is that the overall trend for miles driven in China has been declining since 2010. So less miles driven could translate to less demand for replacement tires and consequently less global rubber demand. Lastly, what was worth noting is that traded tire volume, particularly from low cost origins, has increased, placing pressure on tire production in the developed market. Advanced economies are using tariff barriers to protect their production, but the overall trend might be that tire production is moving over to emerging markets from a high cost of production to low cost of production. Such a long-term trend would have an impact on trade flows of both natural and synthetic rubber. We might start to see less rubber being exported to advanced economies, but staying put at its origin destination for tire production before exporting the tires to the US, Europe or Japan. A possible shift in the trade flow 
that would send the industry back to the drawing board, especially in regards to the business model. How is the industry looking at the supply situation now, Alvin? We all know climate changes have wreaked havoc lately, like the one we saw in Thailand in November last year. Climate change is indeed knocking harder at our doors, Arusha. Coincidentally, the weather has been brutally hot and humid in Singapore over late May. How climate change would impact rubber production is a big topic for the present and the future, and was a key point of discussion at the summit. Dr. Eric Goher from CIRAD, the Agency for Agriculture Research for Sustainable Development, highlighted that there would be a global decrease in areas suitable for rubber plantations without any climate limitations. And this would worsen, especially during the second half of the century from 2050 to 2100. So we have enough time to prepare, adapt, and do something about it. However, the overall key message is that with the climate potentially moving to warmer marginality, is uncharted territory for us human beings and the rubber trees. Even though his paper on the Climate Marginality Index was written in 2015, the findings are still relevant as it maps out how the various IPCC scenarios will affect natural rubber production in production nodes like Thailand, Indonesia, Vietnam, India, Cote d'Ivoire, and Brazil. The impact is less likely to be on countries with large coastal borders like Indonesia, Vietnam, and Thailand, there could even be an increase in suitable areas in some countries like Brazil, Vietnam, and India. An increase in the frequency of extreme events would increase all areas, which means tapping activities or production might be affected. And also, climate change will likely increase the length of immature period for the rubber trees, and dry seasons could be more prolonged and more intense. Sounds like going ahead, we might see a supply deficit. Talking about supply and production, ANRPC estimates that smallholders account for 90% of the rubber production. As Farah said earlier, the industry needs to rethink its business model. Taskia, what were the thoughts about improving the situation for the smallholders or enhancing yield? I think this has been a growing concern as the industry moves towards a more sustainable outlook, but it definitely came to the forefront during the COVID-19 pandemic because so many underlying unsustainable practices were exacerbated to the point where they just couldn't be ignored anymore. So collaborative business models that increase the security of smallholders were actually discussed extensively during the World Rubber Summit this year from supporting financial stability through microfinancing by the CFC to more long-term goals through education by the PEFC. I think, thankfully, the industry is at a state of inflection where it is actively choosing to support ESG initiatives and the alleviation of poverty rather than focusing solely on yield and productivity. While we are on the topic of the smallholders, we all know that they are an integral part of the rubber economy. The industry has strive to have a sustainable rubber economy, but nothing substantial has happened yet. So, Taskia, what were the views of the industry leaders on the same? I believe good things take time, and a leader in any industry can recognize that a solid foundation is fundamental in bringing about sustainable change. Creating long-term solutions was definitely at the crux of what industry leaders shared at the summit this year. But yes, you are right. We have unfortunately not seen any substantial change yet, the key word being yet, 
At this point, I think it's important to contextualize ESG efforts because we are indeed past the point of discussing them in abstract and arguably academic terms. We want to see some tangible change, don't we? I think it is operationalizing these ESG goals into measurable metrics that has taken more time than anticipated, not only in terms of the time it is taking to reach an industry-wide consensus, that is, if we ever do, but also the implementation processes. There are multiple metrics and the multiple bodies that execute them, so it sometimes really boils down to just choosing what the best fit is for your own business needs. And sometimes, as we have observed at the summit this year, the best fit is not necessarily to focus solely on smallholders. And it would be a bit reductive to expect otherwise because there are other unsustainable practices that need to be addressed, such as climate change, as you've already mentioned. While the COVID-19 pandemic has scarred all of us in one way or another, It has revealed immediate unsustainable gaps in probably every industry and many that actually link to the global supply chain crunch. Applying this to rubber and this year's summit, we saw some creative solutions to these immediate problems. A poignant example that comes to mind is the presentation by Mr. Gajendra Singh, founder of Omni United, who discussed how their tyre brand, Radar Tyres, became the first tyre brand to be 100% carbon neutral in late 2013. He highlighted that using market intelligence on their consumers' buying behaviors in different geographies helped them pivot to different suppliers along their very long supply chain to achieve carbon neutrality. Essentially, figuring out who was willing to pay more for a carbon-neutral product and who wasn't. Indeed, this shows how data is crucial in meeting ESG goals, but more importantly, it is the ability, be it through industry expertise or AI slash machine learning, to analyze big data to find the suitable points that apply to your company's specific sustainability goals and or problems that separates the companies who just talk the talk from the ones who actually walk the walk. So clearly data would have a major role to play when it comes to revamping the rubber ecosystem. So to have a coercive ecosystem, digitization would be vital. Uh, Farah, what was uh, industry's view on this? Um, well, Arusha, it seemed to be a core focus for quite a few of the large tire companies and producers. Some of the presentations uh, focused and discussed things like the Internet of Things in the factories, for example. Others chose to focus on big data and machine learning, of which we as a company have put front and center. And some also even talked about the innovation within the types of hevia trees that can be grown. This basically um, shows that digitization, it encompasses innovation, not just uh, you know, going digital. Uh, you too spoke about the role of data in ironing out the inefficiency in the value chain. Yes, that's right. Uh, I spoke about how data and technology were critical in helping companies actually achieve the sustainability goals. There are five main areas where you need better data in relation to ESG. First is to understand your exposure. What is the baseline? It is important to know where you start and what the baseline is so you can track any improvements year on year. Secondly, this is followed by modeling alignment to see where you are against the commitments that you have made as a firm or publicly. Third comes managing risks. For example, Utilizing data to understand if your suppliers or customers are aligned with your goals and to decide how to move forward or work together to reduce the associated risks if they aren't. Another crucial aspect is to spot new opportunities. Good data in relation to ESG 
make sure that it's not just a box ticking exercise, nor just a compliance activity. The data allows you to pick future winners and future opportunities, or even to look within your own firm on areas of growth, which you can double down on. And finally, since companies now have to adhere to ESG reporting requirements, and you need high quality data to properly address this and accurately reflect this to the various stakeholders. So if we are focusing on execution within the sustainability realm, we can already actually accelerate the process. How, you might ask. See, for rubber, we are already part of the container shipping industry, which currently ships 80% of the world's goods. So if you are looking at carbon footprint, out of the 200,000 vessels available in your scope one, two, and three emissions, part of your zero target is the footprint you create. So with good data, you can then choose the most effective vessel, the most efficient port that is carbon neutral, for example, or even minimizing the distance that your vessel travels. So it will come into the pricing and services of all these companies and the supply chain if it's driven by both the regulators as well as the customers. For us at HelixTab, we are in a unique position where we have built some of these data sets and models, as well as these foundational levels of alternative data and a diverse community to be able to drive and accelerate the process, both for corporates and smallholders. Technology actually allows for personalization on scale. That means that different interests can be catered to and preempted to drive better engagement. So it looks like driving sustainability through process optimization or digitization is the go-to strategy for the rubber industry now. I believe the businesses are recognizing this shift. So whether be it while acting on climate issues or attaining a circular economy, businesses' reliance on technology and data is surely in the spotlight. Thanks, guys, for joining us today on Helix Tapping Industry. Thank you, Arusha. Thanks, Arusha. Thanks, Arusha. If you enjoyed today's episode, let us know at marketing at helixtap.com. For more updates on the rubber industry, please check out www.helixtap.com. And you can also follow us on socials under the handle Helixtap. Thanks for tuning in to Helix Tapping the Industry. Until next time.